Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 5th, we are studying Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 17. The prophet continues to call the people of Israel out of the way of death, which they've chosen for themselves, and invites them instead to seek after true life, which only comes from the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Clint Poppy. Pastor Poppy serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome to Sharper Iron. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Pastor. It's a privilege and a great honor. Pastor, as we get going this morning, give us some context in the book of Amos. What what are we looking at in, in the wider context, and also specifically here in chapter 5? What's going on around this text that's going to help us as we dig into it today? Well, Amos is uh, what is commonly referred to as a minor prophet, not because he's of less importance, but because unlike the major prophets, he didn't write quite as much. Uh, Amos is one of the longer minor prophets, but God calls prophets to speak a word, generally a word of repentance, law and gospel, to his people. Amos is uh, is a shepherd, and he's called by God to preach the word of God to uh, a foreign people. They're they're his brothers in Christ, but uh, one of the particular things with Amos is Amos is from uh, Judah, the uh, two smaller tribes down in the bottom, and uh, he is called to preach a message to Israel, the ten northern tribes. And so Amos is uh, looked upon with a bit of skepticism. He's a, a, a foreigner in that respect, and uh, people don't necessarily want to listen to the Word of God, but they don't want to listen to the Word of God coming from this foreigner. So he comes and uh, he preaches a word, a strong word, a harsh word against all the neighbors of Israel. And the people of Israel are really excited. Go get them. Go get them, Amos. And then after he speaks a a word of repentance, a word of law, a word of judgment to them, he zeroes in on the people of Israel. And their exuberation is uh, chilled considerably. God calls Amos to preach a word of repentance to the people. He uh, talks about their false worship practices. He talks about how they, um, uh, I suppose you would say, uh, talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. And uh, there's a major courtroom scene that goes on. God is uh, calling witnesses against Israel. That's in uh, chapters 3 and 4. And by the time we get to chapter 5, the uh, courtroom scene changes. And uh, if you want to have in your mind more of a uh, funeral scene, this is, uh, this is a funeral talk. And God is going to explain through Isaiah why there is a funeral and uh, who is dead. 
So this and this funeral, the the funeral scene that we see here, this is not your your everyday eulogy, is it, Pastor Poppy? Uh, no, it isn't. And I don't know. Uh, some of the listeners may remember a few years ago there was a uh, very very popular book. I forget the name of the author off the top of my head, but it was a, a hillbilly elegy. And it was uh, very, very popular, and uh, a man who had grown up in uh, what was considered hillbilly land, he was looking back over his uh, people, over his land, over his childhood, over his culture, and uh, giving a a, a eulogy or an elegy based on everything that he had seen and witnessed and experienced through his life. That is really what's going on here. God, through Amos, is... um, kind of giving a eulogy over the people and uh, telling them that uh, you're dead, but you don't have to be dead. Like you mentioned uh, earlier, Amos's message is a message of repentance, but it's really a message trying to draw people from death to life. And uh, every true funeral, that's the message. Uh, uh, that reminds me of the words that Jesus speaks in, in John chapter 5, where he talks about the dead who hear the voice of the Son of God. They hear it and they live. That's what that's exactly what Amos is trying to do. The people of Israel have, have died in their idolatry and in their injustice. And now through the word of the Lord that Amos preaches, he is attempting to raise them up, to bring them back to life. They are dead, but they don't have to be. The Lord is there to give them life. Uh, but in order for them to receive that life, they have to recognize that they are dead and, and to admit that and to confess that so that they would hear the word of the Lord in repentance and, and then believe it. Um, any, any other thoughts on the context, introductory remarks before we start digging into the text itself, Pastor Poppy? Well, you mentioned the Gospel of John, and I think that's a, uh, that's a good picture for us to have in mind. In, uh, in John 11, we're confronted with the death of Lazarus. And uh, everybody is mourning and weeping, and uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, your brother will rise again. And Martha and Mary, they don't want to hear that. Uh, you know, they're, they're well catechized. They, they know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, but, but they're hurting right now. They want their brother to be alive right now. And so Jesus goes to the tomb. He weeps because uh, death is not natural in God's order, no matter what we think. And then he speaks, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the word of God, the power of the word of God, brings dead Lazarus back to life. This is always God's desire. And quite frankly, it's a preview of the mother of all miracles, where Jesus himself, just a few chapters later, is dead, and by the power of God comes back to life. This is, uh, this is God's desire for all people. He is uh, primarily a God of life. He's a God of the living, not a God of the dead. And so uh, with that theme in mind, we see the purpose behind God's call to Amos to preach this word, seemingly and at times very, very harsh and very, very severe, to a people who are dead in the trespasses of their sin. With that, then, let's go ahead and read the text that we got before us today. Again, this is Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 17. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. 
You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. So there's the, the text before us today, Pastor Poppy, this, this part of this funeral elegy, this, this eulogy that the Lord speaks to his people, telling them that they are dead with the purpose of raising them to life. And the prophet begins with this image of people in the gate. And that's probably a matter that we need to understand. What's, what's the significance of them being in the gate? What is that setting that Amos is describing for us? Well, there are, there are several places in Scripture where this uh, at, the, at the gate of the city or in the gate or in the gates is uh, referred to. And uh, I think most people would be uh, familiar with the last chapter of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, where the the whole deal with Boaz and the uh, closer kinsman redeemer this this is a matter that needs to be settled in a court of law and whenever we have reference to this uh, in the gates this is the uh, courtroom for the children of Israel people passed by uh, in and out of the gates of the city this is where the elders of the city would gather this is where legal business was transacted and uh, in in Ruth you have the uh, the whole thing about uh, you pick up your sandal and you uh, stick it up into the air that's how you vote yes or agree with what's going on it's really uh, kind of a wonderful picture there but for contemporary hearers uh, this is this is a courtroom scene and uh, this is this is where justice is supposed to be administered. In verse 10, God is continuing his list of accusations against the people that he began uh, at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of chapter 5. He takes a little bit of a break there, and uh, there's kind of a hymn uh, that is uh, sung in uh, verses 8 and 9. But now in 10, he's right back to the accusations against the people, and this is where those accusations should should be taking place. This is a place where God has designed for justice to be administered to his people. So what we have in verse 10, then, is, is awfully similar, it sounds like, to verse 7, right before that hymn that you mentioned. The, the prophet says there that, that the people are those who turn justice to wormwood. They cast down righteousness to the earth. So in this place where there ought to be justice being done, where, where business is being transacted, fairly, the people of Israel are doing the exact opposite. They're, even it says they're, they're trampling on the poor to move us into to verse 11. So, so what should exist there in the gate is righteousness, justice, truth, but instead what exists there in the gate is injustice, 
lies, deceit, falsehood. And, and I think it's probably significant, Pastor Poppy, that verse 10, maybe it's a bit of a reprieve from the accusations in the sense that it uses the third person. They hate him. They abhor him. But then Amos makes sure we know who he's talking to in verse 11. He, he switches to the word you. This is you, Israel. You're the ones trampling on the poor. Well, as a pastor, you know what it's like to preach a sermon and then have people after the sermon come up to you and say, oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. Too bad more people weren't here to hear you. Too bad uh, so-and-so, you know, my brother or my kid or, or whatever wasn't here. And you, you take those compliments with a grain of salt because uh, they heard the word, but somehow that word did not uh, penetrate into their heart. They heard it for others, but they didn't hear it for themselves. And that's exactly what's going on here. Um, God is, uh, in a sense, through Amos, um, bringing the people in. They can see the injustice in others. That's the uh, third person, you know, the, those people out there. You see that in others. And then as he moves forward in this chapter, he moves to the second person, you know, you, you. This is this is uh, this is not just those people out there. This is you. Sort of like with um, Nathan, when uh, when he comes and confronts David with his sin, uh, murdering Uriah and sleeping with Bathsheba, and he tells the parable, and then he says, "You are the man." That's exactly what's going on here. So, what what sins then is Amos convicting? the people of Israel? What is he telling them, you are the man? What's he referencing here? Well, in verse 10, it says, uh, they, again, abhor him who speaks the truth. So, so anybody who is speaking the truth is discounted, is ignored, is uh, made out to be a liar. goes on in verse 11, trampling on the poor and exacting taxes of grain, um, from him, the uh, uh, God takes great, great care of the poor, the widow, the uh, the foreigner in your midst, and it was it was forbidden to uh, levy a tax against the uh, gleanings in the field that the poor could go in and harvest after the main harvest was done. That was that was forbidden. You can't tax that, and yet. Um, the uh, the judges, the the rulers, the people who were in charge saw no problem with uh, squeezing every last penny, nickel, fennig, whatever you want to say, out of the people, no matter what they're standing in their situation. We're we're talking really here about greed on one end and social injustice on the other. And I know sometimes in the in the Lutheran Church. Um, we are hesitant to talk about some of the uh, social ills and social plights that are going on. We don't, we don't want to be seen as being too political or anything like that. And yet uh, God's Word, especially in the Minor Prophets, God's Word has no problem uh, pointing out the sin of uh, social injustice and not taking care of the poor and the indigent among us. The, the matter of the gleanings, uh, Pastor Poppy, might be one that's a bit unfamiliar to some. What, what exactly is the process that you're describing in terms of the gleanings that they weren't to tax? 
Well, again, I'll, I'll just take you back to the book of Ruth. Um, short little book, and you read it in about 12 minutes or so. But um, it was very, very common at the time of the harvest that after the harvest, uh, harvesters would go through the field. That was when the the poor, the widows, the uh, the foreigners, the indigent could come through the field and pick up the leftovers. Mm-hmm. If uh, if the folks are are familiar with uh, modern harvesting practices, uh, even today with the uh, the most fancy combines and. Uh, technology with regard to the harvest, when the uh, combine goes through the field, it doesn't get all of the corn. It doesn't get all of the soybeans. It doesn't get all of the wheat. There is some that is knocked down. There's some that's on the bottom of the plant. And uh, these gleanings were provided by law, by God, so that the poor would have something to eat, so that the foreigner would not have to become a public case of charity. And this this was all a part of God's marvelous design to be a God of life and to take care of his people. Right. And and so to to tax what they've received on the gleanings is, is basically to tax God. This this was what he was providing for the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and all those that you've mentioned. And so to, to tax that is, is to, like you said, just to squeeze the very last penny out of someone, a total disregard for what the Lord has given to his people. And to see him as the God of life. Again, that's, that's a helpful emphasis. So, Pastor Poppy, just real quick, because you, you mentioned, you know, sometimes we do in the Lutheran Church have trouble speaking about some of these things, greed and social injustice. And that even that term, social justice, gets thrown around in, in ways that uh, we're often afraid of when it comes to the, the preaching of the truth as, as Christians. How, I mean, how do, how do we look at what Amos does here and maybe take that as, as an example for ways that we can address those things helpfully today? Well, you, know, you, you mentioned the term social justice, and uh, it took me a long time. You know, I'm, I'm an old timer, and when, uh, when people talk about uh, somebody being an uh, SJW, a social justice warrior, uh, took me a long time to even comprehend what they were talking about. But in our, in our world and in our country, we have so many people that are clamoring for social justice, and they're doing it in a way that promotes a particular political leaning, uh, anarchy, uh, you know, something that is uh, against the, the common norms, the common structure, when the real point is there are people that are poor, that are needy, that are hurting, and God calls us to love him and to serve our neighbor. And even in our post-communion collect, that's what we pray, that, that this meal that we've just received, Christ's body and blood in and under bread and wine, would increase our faith toward God and our love toward one another. And I think so many times we hide behind the excuse that, well, I'm not going to delve into politics. Um, we can address the issues of our day, what, whatever they may be, uh, whether, whether that is the, uh, the uh, homeless problem that we have in our community or how do we handle immigrants or, or whatever. But we can do this in a, in a God-pleasing way based on love God and serve our neighbor. Jesus says, uh, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. 
And there is a positive and a negative aspect of that. When we love our neighbor, we're loving Christ. When we ignore our neighbor, when we hurt our neighbor, when we hate our neighbor, we are ignoring and hurting and hating Christ himself. The thing that I really appreciate about Amos is that he doesn't, he doesn't allow, he doesn't separate these two things, and he doesn't allow us to separate these two things either. As much as he talks about these matters of social injustices, not taking care of the poor, and again, understanding that term social injustice correctly from a biblical perspective of helping those in need, he's going to address those, but he's not going to allow the people of Israel to get away with their false worship either. And those two things are always going to be connected. The, the way that I've, I've referred to it throughout this study is that their problems are idolatry and injustice. And when you've got a problem with one, you're going to have a problem with the other as well. And, and so I, I think, you know, for us as Christians today, we have to be faithful in both areas. This is what the Lord calls us to in those two commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. And, and if we fail to listen to God's word, in either aspect, it's going to hurt, I think, the other one as well. If, if we're not worshiping God correctly, how can we serve our neighbor in love? And if we aren't serving our neighbor in love, then perhaps our worship of God isn't as pure as we think it is. Is, is that kind of what Amos is getting at here, Pastor Poppy? I think, I think that's exactly what Amos is getting at. And we have people who have been lulled into a false sense of security for, for a number of reasons. But they've been lulled into a false sense of security because of their, their uh, lineage, because of their history, because they're going through the motions of their worship and their sacrificial system, that they believe that they are immune to the problems of the day. And the people that Amos is preaching to are much like most of the people in America. They are very well off. They are very affluent. Everything is going well. And so they have no reason to think that any kind of a judgment word of God would be against them. Uh, they're, they're rich. Their bank accounts are full. Their houses are beautiful and well-maintained and well-kept. Uh, everything on the outside looks good. But as uh, Scripture teaches us, sometimes things look good on the outside, but inside we're full of dead bones. And so Amos begins then to, at the end of verse 11, the second half of it, describe what some of those outside things that look good right now are not going to look good as in, in the future. And so he talks about, you've built these houses, but you're not going to live in them. You've planted vineyards, but you're not going to drink their wine. This, this sounds a lot like a reversal of what the Lord had given them in the promised land when they when they came in. They came in and they there were houses there they got to live in. They didn't build those. They got to, to enjoy the fruits of vineyards that they hadn't planted. Now the Lord's going to reverse all of that. Is that what we're seeing here? That is, and, and uh, that that great reversal motif is uh, is all over in Scripture. And um, in in I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter eight the uh, generally that's that's uh, one of the Old Testament readings for Thanksgiving or a day of national Thanksgiving many of our congregations will be be hearing those words in their um, 
in their uh, worship for Thanksgiving. Uh, that's exactly what God says. You know, he is, has delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. He's delivered them from slavery. He's brought them through the wilderness wanderings, and he's brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. They are living in houses they didn't build. They are uh, harvesting crops and uh, drinking from the vineyards that they didn't plant. Uh, this is God's gracious way that he works with his people. And now in this great reversal that we have here in Amos, we have, uh, you have built houses of hewn stone. Uh, these aren't regular houses. These aren't the kind of houses where you, you take the rocks and you put lots of plaster and mortar around them to keep the wind out. These are, are ones that are very expensive, and everything has been perfectly crafted so that it fits together. Uh, this is lifestyle of the rich and famous kind of stuff. You have planted not just vineyards, but pleasant vineyards, vineyards that people come from all over the world to come and see the beautiful vineyard and landscape that you have put together for you. You've done all of this, and much like when Jesus says uh, you built all these bins to store your harvest, and uh, your life is going to be required of you this night. Mm. The, that theme of great reversal is one I think that that we often refer to in its gospel sense, where the reversal is that, the, or the great exchange, perhaps we, we refer to it that way, where the Lord takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. Here, that great reversal theme though is used in its in its law preaching, much like Mary sings in the Magnificat when when she sings, you know, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's He sent the rich away empty. This is the sort of reversal that the Lord is about to work on Israel in Amos's day because they have been filled with idolatry and injustice. And so this great reversal is coming. The Lord is going to show them just who he is and that he is, in fact, serious about what he says. We're looking at that here on Sharper Iron this morning in Amos chapter 5. We need to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, November 5th. We're studying Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 17 with Pastor Clint Poppy of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 10 and 11, talking about that great reversal theme that the Lord uses here, the, the theme that those who have used the poor and the needy to make themselves rich. Now the Lord is going to bring them down. He's, he's going to take away what they have been given. And that theme for the great reversal then really propels us forward into the text, into to verses 12 and 13, as, as the Lord continues to, to tell the people what their sins are and then starts to move us into the response. How does the text keep going, Pastor Poppy? 
Yes, well, in uh, in verse 12, after this great reversal, and again, our ears are trained uh, as Lutheran ears, I think most of the time when we hear this great reversal, we think of our sins being put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness being put on us, the uh, great exchange that Luther talks about. That great reversal is both law and gospel, and we're going to get to that uh, in verse 17, where we're going to see another uh, great reversal kind of a theme that comes back. And in between, in verse 12, he says, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. We have corruption going on, again, at the gate, a place where there should be liberty and justice for all. The people who are in charge of justice are greedy, they are selfish, they are oppressing the poor and the needy, they're lining their own pockets, thinking that they're going to get away with it, that nobody sees them. Nobody sees what's going on, but God sees, and God knows. He knows our sin. He knows our transgressions. He knows how great they are. And then verse 13 is, uh, is really kind of shocking. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. We would think that God would say just the opposite. Now is the time to speak out. Now is the time to speak out against this injustice and this unrighteousness. Now is the time to speak out against this, uh, this evil and this greed. And God is saying, it's not going to do any good. The sin is too great. The sin is too deep. You're better off, be prudent. You're better off just saving your breath. Examine your own heart and your own sin. But at the same time, silence is what is called for. That word stuck, stuck out to me as well, this command to keep silent, especially in the context that we live in where something bad happens, it seems that everyone wants to voice their opinion and say why it was wrong, why there was an injustice carried out, that, that the Lord would command silence during this evil time is, is a bit shocking. I, I think one, one thing I, I would bring out is that obviously Amos is not to keep silent. We know that Amos is not to keep silent about these things because the Lord has sent him to preach. But but perhaps the the idea here, uh, you can tell me what you think about this, Pastor Poppy. The verse that came to my mind was was Psalm forty six verse ten, where the Lord says, "Be still and know that I am God." And, and so perhaps the idea here is that don't don't speak out about it. Be silent, recognizing that the Lord is going to do something. It is it is the Lord's job to to bring the judgment, and He will do that. Perhaps perhaps that's going on in verse thirteen as well. Yes, that was the exact verse that came to my mind. Uh, be, be silent, be still, uh, know that I am God. Now is, now is the time for uh, silent reflection upon your sin. We come into God's house, and uh, as a part of our preparatory service in the uh, confession part, uh, we are silent as we contemplate our sins. And in, uh, I believe it's Romans 3, God's word goes forth. And uh, we are we are silent. Um, God commands us to be silent so that every tongue may be stilled. Now is not a time to make excuses. Now is not a time to open your mouth and 
try to justify yourself. Keep quiet and listen to the word of God. Know that God is in complete control, even in the midst of all this injustice. God is going to take care of it. And be still, be quiet, listen to me, listen to my word. And so then the Lord speaks that word to them rather than them speaking up. The Lord's going to speak to them in verses 14 and 15. And I really think that verses 14 and 15 here in chapter 5 are the heart of the text that we are looking at today. And in some respects, you might even say the heart of Amos' Amos's entire message. What's there in verses 14 and 15, Pastor Poppy? Yeah, the, these words are, are almost smack dab in the middle of the book. And you, when you when you grow up in Western civilization, when you, when you think like an American, you go to class and you get your syllabus in college, you, uh, you have an outline. You have A, B, C, point one, point two, D, E. We, we think in, in those terms. But uh, many times in biblical literature, uh, things are, are done not so much in an outline form, but in a circular form, and they go out from the center. And, and these words really are the heart, the core, and the soul of Amos' message in the entire book. Seek good and not evil. So he, he calls the people to be silent, to listen, and then he says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of Sabaoth, will be with you, as you have said. And then he, and then he uh, says the same thing in a, in a little bit different language. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. And then uh, literally in the Hebrew, it's perhaps... Uh, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Beautiful, beautiful words of encouragement not to lose hope, but to cling to the word of God, to cling to the grace of God, to cling to the very real presence of God, and to cling to the life that only he can provide. There has not been a lot of what we would label as gospel in the book of Amos up to this point, and there's not going to be a whole lot until you get to chapter 9, the very end. But here is one of those moments where Amos does give us a bit of a reprieve as, as he speaks in these, these two verses. And so just to dig into them a little bit, the words seek good and not evil, and then their, their counterpart in verse 15, hate evil and love good. We need to understand those terms biblically, Pastor Poppy, not just, you know, seek good, well, whatever I think is good. What, what, what does Amos have in mind when he preaches seek good and not evil? Well, the, the people have a perverse understanding of what is good and what is evil. They are uh, full of greed. They are uh, oppressing the people. And in their mind, it's good because nothing bad has happened. In their mind, everything is just fine. And so when we think we have better words than the Lord God himself has, we always get ourselves in trouble. So this is an opportunity here, and God is calling the people to repent. This is an opportunity to uh, kind of recalibrate what is good and what is evil. What God says is good is good. What God says is evil is evil. No matter what your ears hear, no matter what your heart feels, uh, 
God is the judge. God is the one who has made the heavens and the earth and including us. God is the one who speaks his word, his word of law and his law, word of gospel. And any time that we try to change God's word to suit our own mind, our own fancy, our own self-justification, we are sinning against God. And so by calling the people to seek good and not evil, in a sense he's saying, get back to the word of God, get back to the scriptures, get back to my message, God's message, because in that message is life. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Only in God and in his word is life. And Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. You think this full life is yours by your own doing. You think all this wonderful stuff that you have gathered around you, all your material possessions and your honor and prestige, that these things are are things that you did. No, 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 no. I have allowed you to go forth, but I'm calling you to repentance now. Seek good, not evil. There's the true life. Yeah, seek good and not evil is is almost, I mean, it's different, there are different words, but it's it's basically the same thing that Amos has preached in verses 4 and 6 of this same chapter, where the Lord says, seek me and live, and then again in verse 6, seek the Lord and live. So to, to seek good and not evil is to do that, to go back to the word of God. And, and when they do that, then the Lord actually will be with them as they are saying. They believe that he's with them because they've got all this material prosperity. He's telling them, look, no, I'm, I'm not really with you in that sense because you're, you're disobeying me. You're not, you're not worshiping me truly, and, and you're hurting others around you because of it. And so again, those, those matters of idolatry and injustice are paired together here. And so Amos calls the people back from both. Get your, get your worship right. Fix, fix the faith. Trust in the one true God. And then from that will flow matters of, of justice and service to the neighbor. And, and I think the other thing that really stands out to me in these verses, Pastor Poppy, and, and may strike our ears as unusual, is the very end of verse 15 with that word that you were highlighting, perhaps, or, or in the ESV, it may be that the Lord will be gracious. We're, we're accustomed in um, Divine Service Setting 1 of the Lutheran Service book, um, the, the one from the Lutheran Worship Hymnal, in the Confession of Sins, we speak 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, where, where, we, where we hear, and now I'm, I'm going to have trouble pulling it out of my head when I need it. Um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you've got 1 John 1, 8 and 9, where, where it says, when we confess God is faithful and just, he will do this. And here in Amos, you've got this perhaps or, or maybe. What, what's going on in Amos with the perhaps or the maybe when it comes to the Lord's response? Well, there, there is no doubt or perhaps or maybe with God's presence because he is with the people. The question is, is he with the people in a law way or is he with the people in a gospel way? And in one sense, you would say both. But is he for them or is he against them? The same question is for us. Is he for us or is he against us? His his presence is real. There is no... Um, ifs, ands, or buts with regard to that. And this perhaps um, 
perhaps I will uh, stall off the Assyrians from coming and conquesting you uh, a little bit longer. There is no doubt with regard to his presence, his love, and his forgiveness. And so he's talking here in a, in a temporal sense with regard to the impending doom and the impending um, catastrophe that, that awaits the people. He, uh, he says that, um, uh, let's see here in verse 14, uh, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And here we have that, that remnant theme that is throughout the pages of the Scripture, really, that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, um, that God always preserves for himself a faithful remnant. He is with them to protect them, to guide them, and to save them. So, are you with God by grace through faith, or are you outside of God by rejecting his word and rejecting the gospel promises? Because God is with you either way. He's with you to save you, or he's with you to judge you. And perhaps that remnant thing help, theme helps answer this question as well, that the Lord is going to preserve for himself a remnant of faithful people. And Joseph being a, a wonderful example of one of their forefathers who was faithful. But the perhaps is the Assyrians still may come. Even if, even if you repent and you are a part of that faithful remnant who has received the Lord's forgiveness, he's with you for your good and for your salvation— the Assyrians still may come, or, or to think about Joseph as a, a story, you know, what, what happened to him, right? You still might go to prison in Egypt, but still the Lord is going to be faithful to you in the midst of that suffering. And so the, the perhaps would not put into doubt the Lord's forgiveness um, or, or his mercy, but rather the perhaps is to say, even in that forgiveness and mercy, which is a completely sure, the Lord still may bring temporal punishment upon you even as a part of his remnant. It's, it's important that uh, God has used that term, the remnant of Joseph, because that's, that's kind of an odd way for God to talk about the remnant. Many of us know the Joseph story, and uh, Joseph suffered mightily. Uh, he was betrayed by his brothers. Uh, he was thrown into a pit. He was sold as a slave. He was put in prison after he was falsely accused of sexual misconduct. All these terrible sufferings and terrible things happened to Joseph. And yet Joseph clung to the promise that God was with him no matter what. And by talking about the remnant of Joseph, no matter what disaster befalls you, cling to my word. Seek good and not evil. Life is yours, that is my promise. From Adam and Eve all the way back to faithful Christians today, this is God's promise that he will preserve unto himself his people, a faithful people, people that cling to his word. Yeah, and so in that sense, the, the perhaps that the Lord will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph even even strengthens what Amos has said and the certainty of of what will happen when you do seek good and not evil, that you will, in fact, live. And that life will be yours, even if you, like Joseph, endure this great suffering, still you will have that life in the Lord. And so you've got this wonderful gospel promise here in verses 14 and 15. In the midst of all this law, 
And and then in verse 16, that that theme of law and judgment and condemnation comes comes back with full force. And we hear again, Amos identify the Lord Yahweh as the God of hosts, the, the God of armies. I, I, we, we probably don't always hear that term, the God of hosts, with its full sense, I, I think, Pastor Poppy, in, in English. God of hosts doesn't sound too too threatening, but it's maybe not the nicest way to, or, well, that maybe not, it's not the, the, the calmest picture we have of God, I suppose. No, we we uh, we like to think of uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, we don't we don't like to think about Jesus or God in general as being a uh, a god of of war or a god of armies. We uh, we misunderstand many times, even in our uh, liturgy and in our hymns, we think of of God of Sabbath instead of God of Sabaoth, those words are close, but they're not the same. And uh, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the heavenly hosts who um, fight evil and serve God's children. And uh, this God of hosts theme is uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament scriptures. In this section of uh, scripture that we're looking at today, Amos 5, 10 to 17, it's repeated three times. Uh, God is the God of hosts. God is the God of armies. And at the, at the end of verse 17, we see a great, great reminder of what the God of hosts, the God of armies, is capable of doing. And I don't want to jump the gun, but I want to make sure that we have time to get to this in the program. He, uh, in verse 17, uh, the very last line says, For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is, this is a clear reference to the Passover. This is a clear reference to the slaughtering of the firstborn, where God sent the angel of death into Egypt to kill the firstborn of Egypt. This is the power and the might and the destruction of the God of hosts. God is going to pass through our midst. He is in our midst. He dwells with us. And God is going to pass through our midst for destruction. Destruction is real. Destruction is coming. So, heed the call to repentance. Listen to the word of God. Repent and live. Seek good not evil, because there is life. Yeah, that reference to the Passover in verse 17 is very striking for the people. It's just as you've, you've pointed out for us in several places in the book of Amos, where he, he just shocks the people in the way that he, he preaches these things. Verse 17 surely would have been shocking for them when you consider the great deliverance that the Passover was for the people of Israel. The, the Exodus event was the salvation story of the Old Testament. This is what the people pointed to over and over again as the Lord's deliverance for them. And so for Amos to come along and to say what the Lord did to Egypt, now he's going to do to you is, is just, there's that great reversal theme coming up again here here in verse 17. And, and again, a reversal that, that's going to lead to to judgment and and verse verses sixteen and, and seventeen together really return us to that that overall picture that we've talked about at the very beginning. We're back in that that funeral elegy again, where where there's wailing, there's weeping, and and it's everywhere. Now, Pastor Papa, we still have just over five minutes left to to look at those verses yet. 
Okay, the uh, the uh, that that great reversal with the Passover theme ties us back to something that you've mentioned several times in our uh, in our program today, and that's the worship life and the worship practices of the people of God. Uh, so much of the worship life drew from, reflected upon, and was immersed in this great salvation event, God delivering his people from Egypt, from Pharaoh, from slavery into freedom, from death into certain life. This was their worship life. And they were going through the motions, but they didn't see how any of this applied to them. And so in that verse 17, that that shock that is there is that you're, you're worshiping um, a God and you're remembering the Passover and the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt. Remember, in the same way that I came and I passed through Egypt, I can and I will pass through you. Another call to repentance and a call to reform the worship life of the people. They were going through the motion, but their hearts were far away from God. They were going through the motions, but their ears were not in tune with what was actually going on. And so because of that, there's going to be a funeral. And that's those, uh, that's those verses, uh, primarily verse 16, where he says, In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, uh, woe, woe. And they shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing. You know, when you think of a funeral, you think of people going to the church, to the cemetery, to the funeral home. You don't think about a catastrophic death that causes there to be mourning, weeping, uh, uh, gnashing of teeth throughout the entire countryside. I've had a couple of funerals where the death was so devastating. Maybe it was a small child. Maybe it was a prominent businessman or farmer where it wasn't just the, the people of God in the church or the immediate family that were stricken, but the entire community, the entire countryside was driven to their knees because of this sudden and unexpected death. Think of uh, all the people who flocked to church after 9-11. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. This is the total devastation that God is bringing about, and it's going to drive everybody to their knees, and there won't be anybody, any place, that'll be able to avoid it. Yeah, the destruction is is completely devastating here in these verses, Pastor Papa. We've got just under two minutes left, and 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 I wanna I'm gonna let you have that opportunity then to use this text to summarize and and bring us back to that overarching theme that the God that we have is one of life, and that's what He wants for His people. Our God is a God of life, not a God of death. He created life. He sustains life. He wants all people, now that sin has entered into this world, he wants all people to repent and to believe the good news. That good news is not some generic good news. Uh, I'm a Washington Nationals fan, and uh, trust me, um, that's good news that the, for me that the Nationals won the World Series. 
but not everybody's a Nationals fan, so that's not good news for people who are Houston Astros fans or especially for Atlanta Braves fans. So this good news is a specific good news that is in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every word of Scripture, every word of Amos, is pointing us forward to the once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, for the sins of the world. In Jesus is perfect justice, a great reversal. Jesus is perfect, and yet the sin of the world is laid upon him. Everybody looks at that and says, that's crazy. But in God's perfect courtroom, Jesus pays the penalty for us. We are set free. This is the justice that God has for his people, and he wants all people to believe it. Don't listen to the voices of the world. Don't listen to your own sinful heart. Listen to the word of God. God is truly good. God is justice personified. And Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the grave, and turns our weeping and wailing, Psalm 30, into dancing. Our funeral elegy is now a joyous celebration of life because of Jesus, who has overcome even death and the grave for us. Pastor Clint Poppy is the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 5, verses 10 and 17. Pastor Poppy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, anytime, anytime we can dig into God's Word together, it's a great joy. Amen. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.